From Thriller Digital, welcome to Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, James Lee. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. Episode 1, Murder on Vagabond Way. It's Thursday, June 17, 2004, in Altamont Springs, Florida. It is still a refreshing 75 degrees out when 22-year-old Mark Van Sant and his 21-year-old girlfriend, Samantha Williams, wake up. They have been dating for quite some time and often stay the night at each other's houses. The night before, they had left Samantha's house, which she shares with her mother, Cheryl, and grandmother, Carol, to sleep at Mark's parents' house. Samantha, Cheryl, and Carol are well-liked in their community, and people describe them as folks who would do anything for anyone, even though they don't have much. Cheryl is an only child, so after her father John passed away nine years earlier, her mother Carol moved in with Cheryl and her daughter Samantha. The reasoning for her mother's relocation was that so Cheryl could be her full-time caregiver. Carol had become wheelchair-bound after suffering multiple strokes which left her paralyzed on the left side of her body, and her disability caused her to rely heavily on Cheryl. Samantha, her granddaughter, does her best to help both her mother and grandmother when she can, but also spends quite a bit of time working at Subway, spending time socializing with friends, and spending some time away from home with her boyfriend, Mark. When Samantha and Mark wake up and begin getting ready for the day, Samantha tells them that she forgot to grab her work uniform out of the washing machine at her house, and that she needs to use his dryer for her uniform because hers is broken. She asks if he would mind running over and grabbing the uniform for her. Mark agrees, jumps in his truck, and arrives at Samantha's house at 121 Vagabond Way at approximately 9 a.m., engine rumbling. He parks, quickly walks barefoot up to the home, and pushes the front door open just enough to discover a disturbing scene. Samantha's mother, Cheryl, is lying face down in a pool of blood, her body blocking the front door. She has been brutally stabbed to death, murdered in cold blood. In a panic, Mark dials 911. On the 911 call, Mark tells police that he discovered the body of his girlfriend's mother. He reports that the front door was unlocked when he arrived and Cheryl's body was lying face down, blocking the front doorway. The 911 dispatcher instructs him to perform CPR, but Mark refuses because he says Cheryl's body is cold and stiff. Deputy Pensa and Deputy Bates of the Seminole County Sheriff's Office, SCSO, arrive at the scene shortly after Mark's call. Deputy Pensa and Deputy Bates find not only 47-year-old Cheryl Williams' body blocking the front door, but also that of her mother, 68-year-old Carol Barris lying dead in the living room floor next to her wheelchair. When they find her, she is lying on her side with her legs underneath her wheelchair and her head under an end table. Now someone will have to inform Samantha of what has happened to her mother and grandmother and explain that her home is now an active crime scene. Deputy Pensa confirms that the bodies are cold and rigor mortis has indeed set in. Derived from the Latin words for stiffness and death, rigor mortis is a condition where the joints of the body stiffen and become locked in place. This occurs a few hours after the time of death. Rigor mortis lasts around 72 hours, depending on body temperature and other factors, 
but it is usually one of the first things investigators can use in order to establish a basic timeline. Detectives would later learn that Cheryl had been stabbed a total of 129 times and bled out, while Carol had only suffered two stab wounds. Dr. Beaver, the medical examiner on the case, testifies that the mortal wound for Carol, the grandmother, was the first, a stab to the chest, that severed her left ventricle, leading to an instantaneous drop in her blood pressure. This would have caused Carol to lose consciousness within 20 seconds. This could explain the stark difference in the condition of the two women. Perhaps the killer simply moved on, because it was clearer that Carol had died almost immediately in the attack. However, 129 separate stab wounds also suggests the killer had something deeply personal against Cheryl Williams. Almost an hour later, Jacqueline Grossi, the lead crime scene analyst for the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and Robert Hemmert, an investigator with the SESO Major Crimes Unit, arrive at the scene. Investigator Hemmert immediately notices footwear impressions in the area between the two deceased women and the hallway leading to the attached trailer part of the home. The footprints continue through the kitchen area and in the direction of the furthest bedroom, Samantha's. If the killer had been looking for other victims in the house, or specifically for Samantha, they wouldn't have found her. She had been staying with Mark the night before. Cheryl's son Eric also had a room in their home, but was in Houston, Texas for work the night of the murders, and was safe. At the scene, Grossi and Hemmer provide a second and third visual confirmation that rigor mortis had indeed already set in on the victims. They begin to form a timeline. Beginning one hour ago at 9 a.m., when Mark first arrives at 121 Vagabond Way and discovers their bodies, he describes them to the 911 operator as being very stiff. This indicates to investigators that the deaths occurred between 8 and 12 hours before, which puts the time of the double homicide between 9 p.m. on June 16th and 1 a.m. on June 17th. But investigators have two more clues to consider for their timeline. Both women were dressed in the same clothes they wore the night before on the 16th, and according to Cheryl's blood alcohol level, the attack likely occurred before they went to bed. Per homicide investigation protocol, officers begin canvassing the neighborhood, hoping to gather information from any potential witnesses. Around 11 a.m., officers arrive at the residence of Clemente Aguirre Harkin, Feliciano Espinoza, and Guillermo Espinoza, the next-door neighbors living at 117 Vagabond Way. Guillermo and Feliciano share the home, while Clemente resides in the back shed. Unbeknownst to the officers, Clemente, also known as Shorty due to his 4'11 stature, is an illegal immigrant from Honduras who arrived in Florida just one year earlier. In Honduras, he was described as friendly and likable and was well-known as a soccer player. However, gang presence in Clemente's community was rapidly increasing, and he was being actively recruited to join by narcotics traffickers. He witnessed his best friend's brutal murder in the public streets, and his friend's lifeless body was dumped in front of his own mother's house. Eventually, the gangs approached Clemente with a threatening message, tick-tock, tick-tock, which Clemente understood to mean that he had better pick a side or face the consequences. At this point, Clemente's mother sent him to Nicaragua to live with his grandmother for nine months to escape dangerous eyes, 
Nicaragua was a poor country, not faring much better than Honduras. So we asked for his sister's assistance in getting him to America, as she lived in Florida. To get into the U.S., he caught a coyote, a term used to describe someone that immigrants pay to guide them across the border, and swam across the river with a bag of his clothes in his mouth. He claims that he first entered the United States illegally through Laredo, Texas, and arrived in Florida on March 18, 2003. From there, he went straight to his sister's house. He ended up meeting Guillermo and Feliciano, who offered him to stay in their shed in the back, and he's been living there for a while, getting acquainted with the neighbors, particularly Cheryl, Carol, and their family. In the interview, Clemente and his roommate Feliciano tell the officers they know nothing. Clemente claims to have spent the night before at Pretzels, a local pool hall and bar. He says he then went to his friend Salvador Prado Cisneros' house. Despite the fact Clemente speaks very little English, the police conduct the interview without a translator present. Feliciano provides a written statement that he worked overnight and arrived home at 4 a.m. He claims he didn't see Clemente when he got home. Clemente provides a written statement indicating what he had just shared verbally with the officers, that he had been at Pretzel's Billiards from approximately 6.30 p.m. to 2 a.m., at which point he went to his friend Salvador's house. He and Salvador were drinking until about 5.45 or 6 a.m. and then returned home and went to sleep. Guillermo arrives at the residence a short time later and provides a written statement that he was sleeping and did not hear or see anything unusual. He states that he did not see Shorty until about 10 a.m. when he woke up. After the interview, Officer Bean obtains written consent from them to search their property. Not long after interviewing the neighbors, Officer Bean interviews Mike Weaver, the community maintenance man affectionately known by residents as Maintenance Mike. He tells Bean that Cheryl had come by his home the previous night around 9.30 p.m. and had left around 11 p.m. While she was there, he overheard her talking to a friend, Diane Schroyer, about an argument Cheryl was having at the time with her daughter, Samantha. This information leads police to believe that Cheryl and Carol had likely been killed between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., further narrowing down the time the attack took place. A third interview is also occurring that morning at 11 a.m. Investigator Hemmert, who arrived at the scene around 10, interviews Mark, boyfriend of Samantha. He tells Hemmert that when he found Cheryl's body, it was stiff and, this is a direct quote, obviously she'd been dead for a while. He confirms Maintenance Mike's account that Samantha and her mother had gotten into an argument at their home the night before, placing himself and Samantha at the scene as one of the last people to see Cheryl and Carol alive. According to Mark, he and Samantha decided to leave her place to sleep at his parents' house at around 11.30 p.m. because they, quote, weren't going to get any peace or quiet with her mother and grandmother there. When Hemmert asks Mark what Cheryl was upset or ranting and raving about, Mark replies, just life in general, just uh, upset because I'd spilled ice on the floor and forgot to pick it up. She asked me if I'd ever do that over at my house. An argument in the hours before a brutal attack can be a powerful lead for investigators to follow. But this was over something fairly petty. Ice on the floor. Even with witnesses, it's not easy to determine if this was simply the nature of Mark's relationship with Cheryl. Run-the-mill boyfriend and girlfriend's mom conflict. Or if this is an outburst that's typical of Cheryl. Or somehow, motive for murder. 
Mark says that when he and Samantha left her house, they had last seen Carol watching TV in the living room north of the front door. They hadn't seen Cheryl, but assumed she was at a neighbor's house, a few doors down at 125 Vagabond Way. During their interview, Mark reveals to Hemmert that Samantha had been Baker acted a couple of times. The Baker Act is a Florida law that enables family members or loved ones to involuntarily commit someone if they are considered a danger to themselves or others. In fact, Deputy Diane Toronzo, one of the officers assigned to the team investigating the Vagabond murders, had been directly involved in one of Samantha's arrests and involuntary commitments three years before. Mark then tells Hemmert that Samantha's neighbor, Clemente, had recently been found inside Cheryl and Carol's home during early morning hours. The police make note of this, and the implications of this statement will turn the direction of this case on its head. Mark's interview progresses, and towards the end, Hemmert and Mark have the following exchange. Hemmert. Right, right. Um, Well, let me ask you this, and this is a tough question. Uh, but obviously we have an extremely difficult job at this point in time. Why in the world do you think somebody would want to do something like this to these poor people? Mark, inaudible. Uh, They've just got the, the type of people that live around here. Some of them aren't great or some of them are some type or maybe they were they were on something and they're just unable to, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I don't know why they're not, you know, obviously they're not, you know, blonde, I mean, you know what I'm saying. They're not, you know, cute, cute young girls. They're not anything that normally, like, I I don't know. Just somebody had something wrong in their head. I I don't know anything else. I I don't know who. Hemmert. I agree with you there, because nobody in their right mind does anything like that to people. Mark's description of the victims indicates he doesn't consider them the typical targets, i.e. cute young girls, of the people that he describes frequenting the area. He generally outlines people dealing with substance abuse issues and past records with law enforcement, incarceration, or immigration. A couple of months prior to the murders, Mark pled guilty to the statutory rape of a 12-year-old two years before, when he was aged 19 or 20. For that crime, he received only 10 days of sex offender probation, along with four years of conventional probation on an unrelated cocaine charge. He faced a combined prison sentence of 18 to 20 years for both the sex and cocaine cases, but Judge O.H. Eaton Jr. reduced the sentences, saying, He is not a pedophile. He's not a rapist. He's not a violent sex offender, but was an extremely immature man. Christine Craig, one of the crime scene analysts, was called to photograph both the crime scene as well as Mark Van Sant. He was found with cuts on both his hand and leg. There were also bloodstains on his feet, which contradict his claim that he had not entered the house. Mark was barefoot when the cops arrived. At this point, Hemmert finally sits down to interview Samantha Williams, almost five hours after the discovery of her mother and grandmother. It was Mark's father who shared the information with Samantha. Samantha explains that her mother and grandmother shared the northernmost part of the house, which they called the apartment, while she lived in the westernmost part, the attached trailer. Her mother slept in the apartment's bedroom, while her grandmother slept in the apartment's living room. 
She tells Hemmert that she was at home the night before and left around 11 p.m. Samantha's interview is now the third account that says Cheryl, Samantha, and Mark are all out of the house at 11 p.m. Samantha and Mark both gave detectives the same time frame, which was also corroborated by Maintenance Mike, and three people with the same time frame add validity to Samantha's account. Therefore, Carol, Samantha's grandmother, was left alone during this time. Hemmert asks Samantha whether she and Mark had gone directly to his parents' house after leaving her house, and she pauses for more than 27 seconds. Most people would consider 27 seconds an unusually long pause, but it's impossible to know what was going through Samantha's head, especially in the wake of such devastating news. She then claims to have gone first to the house of Phil Kadesh, a friend of Mark's. To our knowledge, this is the first mention the police hear of Phil. Suspicious, Hemmert tells Samantha, I didn't start doing this job just yesterday. We're going to figure out what happened, regardless of who's responsible. I can guarantee you that. Samantha admits that after Phil's house, they went to Mark's parents' house, where he had been staying for the past several months. When Hemmert asks, why was that such a difficult question? Samantha responds, it wasn't. His parents don't like me. Mark later testifies that he and Samantha visited Phil's house before going to his parents' house, which now lines up with Samantha's account. To provide a little background, Mark had previously lived with Phil when Mark was on the sex offender probation and could not live at his parents' house at the time, so it's not completely out of the norm for them to visit. Samantha and Mark also give different stories about the whereabouts of Mark's cell phone on the night of the murders. Mark claims to have used his cell phone to call 911 when he discovered the victim's bodies, but Samantha testified that the cell phone was on the table beside the bed at his parents' house after he had left that morning. The discrepancies in Mark and Samantha's accounts of their whereabouts the night of the murders and the different recollections of Mark's cell phone location are, if nothing else, interesting. In 2004, police should have had the capability to determine cell phone location using cell towers and other available technology. They should have, in theory, been able to pick up on any pings made on either Samantha or Mark's cell phones, both on the journey to Phil's house and or to Mark's residence, which would have further validated both Samantha and Mark's statements. Hemmert asks Samantha if she can think of anyone who would want to harm Cheryl and Carol, and Samantha gives an interesting answer. She says she has a strong suspicion, a gut feeling, that the attacker was 24-year-old Clemente Aguirre Harkin, the next-door neighbor at 117 Vagabond Way. Now, if you're wondering what would make Clemente her main suspect, she actually has a plausible answer for that. She tells Hemmert that Clemente had let himself inside their home on at least three occasions, and that one night she had found him standing by her bed at 3 a.m. Samantha tells Hemmert that he had to be escorted from the house and asked not to return. Around the same time, Deputy Bean and Sergeant Negri of the SCSO sit down to interview Mark Van Sant's mother. She claims that she isn't aware if Samantha was still at her house that morning. The SCSO is unable to confirm at what time Mark and Samantha had allegedly arrived at the Van Sant residence. They didn't know whether they arrived together or separately or where Samantha and Mark were around midnight. The interview, unfortunately, doesn't get them any further in their investigation, but what they find next certainly will. 
While investigating the crime scene and canvassing the surrounding area, police find a bloody 10-inch Cisco kitchen knife between the crime scene residence and the house next door, 117 Vagabond Way, the same home where Samantha's main suspect, Clemente, lives. The suspicion only mounts. That evening, three officers from the SCSO, Investigator Majorana, Sergeant Negri, and Deputy Taranzo, who was there to translate, record an interview with Clemente. Clemente again tells investigators he had been at Pretzels on the night of June 16, 2004, and explains that he had gotten into an altercation with another customer. Not only that, but Altamont police had been called to Pretzels at about 1 a.m. to address the altercation. He claims he stayed there until 2 a.m. and then went to his friend Salvador's house for several hours. Then, surprisingly, Clemente asks to speak to Deputy Taranzo privately, as he has an admission to make. We'll find out next time on Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. In the next episode, what could be the reason for Clemente's request to speak privately with Deputy Taranzo? As evidence continues to come to light, it's hard to remember that things aren't always what they seem. And if this case teaches us anything, it's that there's no such thing as a secret. You'll always get caught if you lie. And it's important to have an alibi. See you next time.